Welcome back to the second 2021 edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. As I often say in these introductions, I'm here to find things out, facts, ideas, opinions, whatever of people I trust. The one person who I can honestly say I've most enjoyed meeting and getting to know in the last decade in this country is Songhezo Zibi. He succeeded me as editor of Business Day and unfortunately didn't stay very long in the job. But he's still one of the best thinkers I know. We're going to talk politics and the economy and hopefully... um, your place in it. But first, I want to read um, back something you wrote uh, in your very fine first book, Raising the Bar, in, I think, 2014. So you get to a chapter, and it's called What is to be Done, very Lenin-esque. You say, transforming an entire country's political culture can occur in at least three ways. The first is to wait for a catastrophic event to force instantly the majority of citizens to consider alternative ways of doing things. The second is an intellectual breath of fresh air, which follows a period of deep introspection by a person or a group determined to find a new social and political path for their society. The third option uh, is a combination of both of these two things, and it's also a rare occurrence. Catastrophe often brings to the fore opportunists, populist demagogues, and imbeciles uh, whose (laughs) whose ability to work a crowd into a frenzy begins to profile them as messiahs. At the same time, a willingness by the population to listen to new ideas is very valuable when it coincides with the emergence of a believable, credible, and solid figure of figures who are willing to make tough choices in order to secure a brighter future. Well, that's Songhezo Zibi in Raising the Bar. If you haven't read it yet, go out and buy it. I think it's still on the on the shelves. But Songhezo, where in those three um, scenarios do you think we are at the moment? Clearly, we're in a, we're in the middle of a cataclysmic event. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you, Peter, for having me and for your generous introduction. I think we are left with option three, Peter. Uh, because we are in the midst of a of an absolute roiling from the from the COVID nineteen pandemic, and it came at a time when our economy really wasn't doing well. And as a country, we were still busy with the project of attempting to recover and rescue public, political, and government institutions from the destruction of the Zuma years. And I believe that both scenarios are likely to, to happen, or option three, basically, where you, you've got a combination of, of chaos and an and uprising in, in some way and in different ways, maybe at community level, in different parts of the country. But at the same time, we have an opportunity to, to reimagine our future anew. The extent to which that would play out remains uncertain, Peter. Do we do we have um, a government capable of sorting it out for us? I, I got into trouble last week by describing the ANC as useless. Do you think that was unfair? <laughs> yeah, I knew you would get into trouble, Peter. You see, the problem is that you and I are no longer in the same newsroom because on occasion you would send your 
your columns to me and ask if you're going to get into trouble or not. Uh, at least you'll still say, oh, well, I'll see and still publish it. Uh, but on a, more, on a more serious note, Peter, I I mean, I don't know if words like useless are, are useful because I, I still believe that the ANC tries its best. It's just that its best is, is no longer good enough for the moment of crisis in which we are. And that's even before the pandemic, because um, the problems that we've had are intertwined with its own problems. And one of the things we've got to give the ANC credit for is public brutal self-assessment. And it has done so in my memory since the Stellenbosch conference in the 90s. And you can track its decline over the years to the current state. And, and therefore, having presided over a the, the destruction of institutions and uh, the destruction of the economy, I don't think it's reasonable to expect it to get us out of it. So at an institutional party political level, it's just not able to, to rescue us at all. We gotta look elsewhere. But the problem is while it while it believes it can, and you've only got to listen to um, you know, the messaging coming out of this weekend's um, ANC La Chotla, which is that, you know, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, and we've got to um, uh, build more houses, we've got to expropriate land, whatever it might be. Uh, we've got to, you know, deal with the virus. Um, as long as it's there and it's big and it thinks it can fix things, how do you make space in it or around it to get anything done, to get the country moving in a better direction, to get people believing that, you know, we're not just stuck in the same hole forever? I think, Peter, we, we got to, to, to allocate responsibilities to the ANC that, that makes sense. It's not their job to create space for alternatives. I think as a party that is in power, its responsibility is to remain in power and make sure that it's got as much credibility with the electorate as possible. South Africa's perennial problem is that there are no real alternatives. Um, there was a time when when back when you had the old Helen and and Lindy Wemazibugo and so on, you had the makings of a real alternative in South Africa back then. But as we all know, the DA has gone on to make all the all the suicidal choices that it could have taken in the intervening period, and it's lost that momentum and credibility with the middle and professional class. The EFF is a niche party, and in many ways, it is an externalized faction of the African National Congress. And so the electorate really doesn't have an alternative. What's missing is, uh, is initiative and agency by those who believe there is opportunity for an, for an alternative. And I believe that we have arrived at that moment. Lots of people I speak to, by the way, Peter, do talk in animated terms about an alternative. There are lots of people thinking about or talking about starting an alternative, but I haven't seen anyone stepping up and saying this is what it's uh, it's going to be. And I'm not talking about Musi either, because Musi has put his cards on the table. What about Herman? So Herman is an interesting proposition, but I I think that his. Um, his party still needs to grow and mature policy-wise and in terms of what it, how it needs to, to connect with the public. 
my sense, Peter, is that South Africans are looking for hope for something to hang on. A lot of the people who are unemployed are looking for, for ways in which it can be possible for them to, to get employment so that they can look after their families and look after themselves. And therefore, when you are a new political formation, the choice of issues you, you choose to propagate is really, really important. And, and, and I might be mistaken, but um, criticizing the ANC or highlighting some of the other things that irritate the electorate, uh, like immigration and so on, does not a comprehensive solution make. Yeah. And that's Hemen's challenge at the moment. But it is a new party. They're doing a lot of uh, street walking and knocking on doors and talking to people. And hopefully that that cohesive or coherent policy message will emerge at a later stage, but they don't have it at the moment. Just just take just take, let's just stick with the conventional parties at the moment. Um, going in now to local elections, which have their own characteristics, we know. Uh, how do you expect how do you expect those to pan out? Let's say they happen in July or August, um, virus permitting. Um, what what are people going to be voting come then? So, Peter, the, the elections, uh, if I remember well, the, the law says they must take place within 90 or 100 days of the fifth anniversary of the previous local government yeah. election, yeah. which means it's 90 to 100 days from August 2020. I think that the local government elections will be a vote, a referendum on two things. One, the government's handling of the pandemic. Mm. And secondly, the extent to which um, the local authorities have been able to respond to the same and still provide services. Logic says that ANC should lose because it struggled to deal with both for various reasons. In fact, municipalities are struggling more now because of the constrained fiscal space. And I imagine on an aggregate basis, a lot more people are struggling to pay their rates or they're paying them late, which means municipal finances are severely constrained. So it is an environment that in terms of conventional thinking, should be extremely unfriendly to the ANC. The question again is one of an alternative. And I think that is where there is opportunity for for independent candidates and others to make a dent on the electoral landscape. Yeah. I, I just want, you know, it, it, it strikes me that, and we know, and I think both you and I will agree that the, that the DA has, has not done itself any favors over the past two years or so, um, the EFF not really being anywhere. Um, uh, but I read an interesting column the other day by Max Dupree. And he was, yeah. I don't know whether you read Max ever, but his suggestion, which got a lot of play, I noticed in the Afrikaans press over the weekend, was that what South Africa needed now was a, a kind of a, uh, a democratic or a national version of AFRI Forum. In other words, you know, a group of determined people who get together and fix things um, and who look out for each other. And I wonder to what extent action 
rather than simple, you know, I say simple, I mean, rather than mere thoughts and ideas, aren't powerful, you know, because when sometimes when I presume, and I haven't seen it myself, but when Forum gets going on a subject and, you know, will send people to to fix a farm or build a bridge or, or a university or whatever it might be, the results can be quite impressive. And I, Max was was kind of imagining how powerful that might be in South Africa if there was a if there was a a kernel of an idea and a unit around which that sort of those sort of people could uh, coalesce. So I saw the column, Peter, and I I disagree. I understand the sentiment and why Max would think something like that would work. I've also heard from a from a nationalistic point of view, people saying what we need is an Afri forum for for black people. Hmm. Um, the point is a lot of what the, the Afri forum gets done usually has to do either with litigation or the threat of litigation. But can you imagine what happens when? notwithstanding court judgments, the state is simply unable to carry out the court order because it doesn't have the capacity to do it. So that's the first thing. And I think we're there in in many ways. And I'll take a bet, Peter, and we can record another podcast again. This electoral reform uh, legislation that the Constitutional Court has given Parliament two years to, to, to get over the line, they will not get over the line, Peter. Parliament is notoriously late with legislation. It will be the first time in a very long time. This is to allow individuals to stand. Yeah. yeah. It will be the first time in a long time that uh, Parliament has been able to get anything done quickly. Uh, you can think on, uh, on on many, many pieces of set-piece legislation where this has happened. That And that's our quandary, Peter. What I believe would work uh, would be a new version of the United Democratic Front, but one that does not seek to make representations to government to get things done, but on the basis of a, of a clear set of principles and a clear set of objectives would decide to coalesce and elect as many from within its ranks as possible uh, into, into the national and provincial legislatures so that at the very least those individuals or that grouping can act as kingmakers because it is the ongoing oversight of institutions, the tough questions that get asked, the balance of power in committees and in the National Assembly that is going to get things done. A lot of what has held us back over the years is an ANC majority that has not had the enthusiasm or the incentive, electoral incentive, to get things done urgently because it knows it's going to win at the next election. I think people are tired of new political parties in the classical sense, especially in instances where it feels too much like a breakaway. It's another EFF, it's another COPE, it's another, you know, you've got a leader from an established political party going on and starting off their own thing. I think, Peter, that is where the short-term future is going to be. The trouble with those coalitions is that if what brings them together is not clear enough, then they themselves can become problematic, especially once they've been elected. But I think it's something that's worth pursuing. Yeah. But if how, how does that happen, though? Then you need people in parliament, so you've got to form a party, um, unless there's another way of another form of association that can elect 
um, representatives without being itself a political party. But what, how would you begin to create uh, or recreate uh, a, a UDF or something? I'm not saying that you want to copy it, but I mean something with that kind of power and 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 flexibility and the ability and the you know the capacity to to move quickly and to focus on the things that matter um because as you say the state and we'll leave out the word useless but the state can't get things done yeah so, so peter the, the beauty about a a mass democratic movement let me let me call it that for lack of a better word because that's what udf became in its in its in its post post burning years, um, is that you're able to achieve three things. The first, you do grassroots mobilization, and so people deal with both local and national issues. Uh, the second thing is that people don't have to disaffiliate themselves from whichever organization they belong to. So if they belong to Sanco or some such, they can belong to that organization, but. The issues at the at the center are so are so obviously pertinent that they're able to apply protest and and similar pressure on the one hand, but on the other hand, whatever federation these organizations form can register for the purposes of an election, can register as a political party because there's nothing in the law stopping such an entity from from registering. The only difference would be, unlike an individual membership association that political structure would be a conglomeration of a set of organizations and individuals. Peter, political parties don't need members. They need activists Mm. in order to to get elected. The membership, a lot of the time, the majority of the members either wear a T-shirt and go and vote, but they're hardly out on the street in big numbers as members. It's the activists who want to. And there is no reason why a structure like that cannot um, cannot do this because it would create a, a rebalancing of the of the political landscape. What do we need in order to get there? I, I really do think, Peter, it's really about, about agency. The tragedy of our time is that what I call the professional class, and these are people like myself, these are working class people, especially the younger people. The only form of affiliation we understand is either a professional, a professional association or a trade union. But we don't get involved in national politics because I believe, you know, you spoke about a self-esteem problem. I, I think actually the self-esteem problem exists amongst my generation and, and I guess professionals like myself who appear not to believe that the country is ours to reshape in our worldview. Yeah. We have, we have the professional experience. We've got university and other training on the job training. We are connected to rural township and other communities, depending on where we come from. There is sufficient depth within the working and professional class for a crop of young people to emerge and use their agency to pull a coalition such as what I'm, I'm talking about uh, together. And I'm not even young, I'm 45, you know, I'm two years yeah. away from when Obama was, when he became US president. So I'm old actually. But that group of people, that demographic is disconnected from national po- politics. And I think that's what we need to awaken. 
I think that the such the, the important thing that I got from that was how the group of people that you're talking about are still connected to rural South Africa and understand rural South Africa and can speak for it or at least speak to it. And I, I wondered how, assuming that these people, it is possible to find a way to give these people something to coalesce around. What are the circumstances that are required? I mean, we were chatting, I was just thinking the other day, um, you know, when I, Cyril Ramaphosa, when, when um, Nelson Mandela was let out of jail, was not even 40. Yeah, he was younger than you. Um, yes, he was look, 39. Look how he was able to, you know, cut a swathe through the body politic and the influence he's been able to have long before he became president. Um but what you find, and I think I find it in myself, I mean, I get tired of hearing the sound of my own voice sometimes. I, I'm now 68, exactly the same age as Cyril. And, you know, I'm exhausted, frankly. And where does, you know, where do, how, how does this, how does this um, torch get passed? So, Peter, it, it's, it's, it's both easy and difficult. It's easy in the sense that uh, there are many people with a voice who've got significant credibility in uh, at least within their own uh, peer group of South Africans who can begin to to pull something like this together. I think one of the obstacles that we obviously have to overcome is that um, the the interclass divisions that you that you get in South Africa. But I think. The moment now is um, is so acute that I don't see that being a major problem. And let me explain why before I get to the rest. A lot of middle-class South African, I will call them that, they live from hand to mouth because of the extent to which they've got to pay extra for services they already pay tax for. So people spend money on private schooling, they spend money on private transport, they spend money on a comprehensive medical aid plan because the public health system doesn't work and so on. So the issues are screaming to be elevated and pulled together into a coherent political message around which a set of a, a wide swath of South Africans uh, can, can coalesce because it is not just about the jobs. It's also about the fact that a lot of hardworking people uh, will retire poor because they were never able to save anything. They were subsidizing a state that does not function efficiently. One. Secondly, a state that is not able to create the environment in which our siblings and cousins and neighbors, whether it's in the villages or it's in the townships, are able to, to have work. Finally, the same group of people see that unemployment is so serious that those who've got children at university and at FET colleges or in high school know that the, the chance that those children will find a job when they leave work are reducing every day because of the extent to which unemployment is growing and the economy is stagnating. So the issues are there, Peter. What is missing is the bravery. And I honestly believe uh, that as soon as tomorrow, you will find that um, that deadlock is broken because somebody has stepped up and, um, and, and done it. 
like I said, Peter, I talked to a lot of my peers. We're from very diverse backgrounds, and everybody is having the same conversation. And that conversation is, we got to try something different. We can't be bystanders anymore. So the opportunity is there. And I think it's just a, it's just a matter of time. Does it need a spark? Does it need a person? Does it need money? Does it need what lifts it up from from the soil? Um, it, it needs a couple of things, Peter. So the first one is it needs somebody. So let's say I get crazy enough to put my hand up. But what's important also is to is is the ideas behind it or the fundamental proposition. I don't know about you, Peter, but my sense after many years of analyzing our political environment and talking to, to hundreds, if not thousands of, of people from all walks of life, is that South Africans are instinctively social democratic in outlook. They, they, by that I mean, they believe in strong public institutions whose job is to, is to intermediate the different interests in society for the group. For the good for for the good of all firstly secondly they believe in freedom and equality and human rights and so on so south africans are very big on their own rights at the very least even if it's not the the, the, the next person that's the second thing so they believe in liberty the third thing is they also see a role for the state as as public property in order to do to 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 own the institutions of upliftment and to facilitate free enterprise for those of us who've got an entrepreneurial spirit. And finally, that this society has got to be able to look after its weakest. And those of us who are in a better position, to varying degrees, we contribute towards funding and resourcing this social contract. We've got a very high tax compliance rate still. And that's because South Africans genuinely don't mind paying tax. And even high taxes, we just need to use those taxes wisely and respect South Africans with transparency. And so I think there is an opportunity to start verbalizing this natural instinct in South Africans from right across income groups and, uh, and, and, and race groups and, and genders. So that for me is, is very important because without that fundamental proposition, we all, all fall into the trap of griping endlessly about the ANC and Ace Mahashule. Honestly, if I never hear about or mention Ace Mahashule or anybody else's name from the ANC, <laughs> it really would be too soon. We need to start discussing fresh ideas and what to do next rather than spending too much time obsessing about the ANC's problems, which it articulates very well on its own, by the way, without yeah. even asking. So I remember when you wrote um, when you wrote raising the bar, we did an interview, I think on Business Day Television all those years ago now, and I asked you or you said, um, and it stuck with me, whichever of us raised it, whether this was just book number one in a kind of Songhezo ZB manifesto. In other words, raising the bar was your political manifesto, and you sort of said to me that you were going to, the next one would be your economic, your economics book, your, your how to change this economy so that it functions. So that when we said, when we say we need more wind power or sun power, it doesn't take 20 years, uh, you know, to get a solar panel into the ground outside our Dutra or wherever we might happen to be. Um, 
how's that project going? Where's 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 um, number two? Where's manifesto? We want the, we want a complete manifesto from you, Songezo. So Peter, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm working on my on that second book, and I'm not just focusing on the economy. In fact, one of the things I've realized over the over the last couple of years, or since I was at Business Day, is that South Africa needs a complete institutional overhaul. There are aspects of the constitution that don't don't quite respond to to the problems that we are facing today. I was just asking for an example. Let me, give, let me give you two examples, Peter. I mean, I think by way of background, a lot of what we have in the constitution had a lot to do with the early 1990s settlement. And, and one of the drivers at the time was to make white South Africans or minorities feel that uh, they have a stake and a, and a strong voice in the political system. I think we've since had sufficient equity among the population for people to know that there are different ways in which their voices met. We're talking about, about Afriforum and litigation and so on, and there are many, many other organizations who, who use this constitution to make things work for vulnerable people and, and whoever else right across the landscape. However, let me give you just uh, just two examples, Peter. If we need to resolve the problems in uh, in Mgandhuli, where I come from, where there is um, there is serious violent crime, so there is a law and order problem. There's high unemployment. There are high levels of alcoholism and and so on. And uh, in order to solve all of those problems, you need numerous government agencies at national, provincial, and local level to all focus on those problems at the same time, to align their budget plans and so on, so that those problems can be resolved. You and I and, and your listeners know that that will never happen. So we need to amend aspects of the constitution so that we are able to reimagine the, the public authority boundaries that we have in South Africa. My instinct is that we better off with uh, district municipalities where you're able to have integrated solutions. But that means you've got to get rid of provinces because they act primarily as remitters of national budget onto a local level and not much else. Do you remember a single law that was passed by a province, Peter, that has got an impact on you that you know about? Not not particularly, but you, you what you're describing is a sort of a, is almost what the United States has, which is the federal government, uh, states or provinces in this case, and then they have what they call counties, which we call districts. Um, yeah, except that in this instance, we would, um, we would, uh, to the extent that we would have provinces, uh, they would be for the purposes of a of aggregating the work that is being done at a district municipality level. But certainly there needs to be a district police commissioner who is partly accountable, who is mostly accountable to the district council. It makes no sense that the King Sabata Dalingyebo municipality, which has no metropolis force, uh, has got absolutely no say in the crime strategy. That makes no sense when crime is a very serious problem in that area. And, and, and so those are the kind of institutional reforms I believe we need. 
in order to have a more efficient state. It's not just about the corruption and sure. the cronyism and so on. Mm. I mean, I just, I'm just trying to think. I mean, obviously, in Kusazana, Lamini Zuma would that would be music to her ears because it's sort of what she's trying to uh, do with her district model, which I notice Cyril Ramaphosa praises every time they have one of these cabinet lakotlas. Um But am I, is that right? I mean, I haven't, to be honest, read enough about the district model to be an absolute expert on it. Um, but this is what she's trying to do, is to devolve power away from small little municipalities like Adutua into something a bit more um, powerful. They, they're trying to solve a different problem. And unfortunately, the approach they're taking is only going to solve part of the problem and not the whole thing. Because you see, Peter, with a system like that, you also have to reform the electoral system in order to improve transparency, to give power back to citizens in terms yeah. of the public representatives who make these kind of decisions. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a super centralized political system and a, a, a decentralized administrative system. The, the, the two have got to happen together. So we would vote for the for police commissioner in in Mbashi district, or we would vote for the we would vote for the um, um, the health director in in Amatole district. Let's say it's probably one shouldn't raise Amatole because that's falling apart. But does 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 this model include more direct democracy? So, Bina, not, not necessarily at that level, but what's important is that, for instance, we, we need to consider whether we, we the, the proportional representation system has got as much influence as it does right now. Because once I know who my MP is for the National Assembly and I know who my councillor is at, say, county level, right, and I can hold them accountable, and our system forces the government to disclose on a regular basis certain information in a way that is accessible to me. Now, I've got the promotion of uh, Access to Information Act, PIA. You, as a journalist, you, you make an application and you know that the default answer you're going to get is no, and then you have to go to court. That's ridiculous. We need to flip that around and make it mandatory for the information to be disclosed so that as Judge Sunderland was said in a, in a judgment many, many years ago, I think it was about 2007 or 2008, in our law, government information should be public and the state should provide very good reasons why that information is not. And he said that is so that ordinary people can make informed political choices. It's a very powerful statement yeah. that he made, and it's true. We don't leave we don't leave it out. So people almost perennially don't make informed political choices because they don't have enough information, and the obligation on public institutions to release this information is, is little. So, but the point I'm making, Peter, for the purposes of this conversation is that you can't reform a little corner such as the government is doing. You gotta do the whole thing so that the whole system works. But then it means a, a mindset of open accountability and a, and a vulnerability to judgment and scrutiny by the electorate that all our political parties are not likely to, to do. And that is why I think a, 
a mass democratic movement or a front would be more attuned to a more transparent environment. So I guess I thank you for this. Uh, when do you expect to finish your book? So I'm working furiously. Uh, my publisher, Penn Macmillan, Macmillan, have been kind enough to support me with a researcher. And uh, I am working on, uh, on a chapter and a half per month uh, so that I am done by, by July. We will possibly have begun in, um, vaccinating uh, some of our some of our citizens, not just uh, frontline healthcare workers. Uh, but thank you, ZB. I want to just thank you for being the presence you are in our public life. You know, you're a you're a val- you're an asset to this country, and and um, um, it would be wonderful to see you. Um, what's the word? What's the kindest way to say it? Coming out of coming out of your very precious shell. Um, more boldly, you know, and if there's space and time for you uh, to be involved in the formation of the kind of movement that you're talking about, I absolutely know that South Africans in their in their in great numbers would would put up, you know, would lift up their heads and say, "What's going on here? This is interesting," and come and listen to you. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. So thanks so very much, Sungeza. Um and hopefully we will see you soon. Uh, viruses and lockdowns notwithstanding. Thank you, Peter, for generosity. I look forward to it. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for listening to Songeza Zibi. You know, whenever I get into um, a bit of a funk about our country, um, and heaven knows there's enough reason to worry about it, um, I think of people like Songeza, and I just know that they are the future. In fact, they're the present of the country. They're already way ahead of the government. They're already way ahead of most of us who write columns in newspapers and podcasts on uh, on the internet. I hope something in some way changes in South Africa to enable them to show us what they can do. Um, we can't get away from our future. We should be running towards our future. We shouldn't be scared of it. Anyway, I hope you'll join me again next week. Um, I'll have another interesting guest for you. Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce, every week, every Tuesday. Take care.